end of the book. It says, you, O Lord, remain forever, your throne from generation to generation. Where is God at? He's on the throne. And so, Father, tonight as we approach you, I, I thank you so much for a church that not only loves you with all their hearts, for uh, leadership like, uh, like Pastor Jason bringing in uh, the youth of our church to be able to recognize one of their, their own that have graduated, uh, but also these that are here that are uh, 18 years old, that are, that are just starting off in their adulthood. Uh, whether it's Aaron or Isaac or, or Zachary or Zachary or Garrett or Gabe or, or any of those that are here in this room tonight, I ask you bless them. Because as we see in your word and especially in the book of Lamentations, life is hard. And we know that you are still there. You're still on the throne. You still give us hope in the worst of times, that, that when it feels like the whole world around us is falling apart, that we can remind ourselves, we can, we can bring this hope to our mind, that we have new mercies every single day, that your loving kindnesses, they will never fail, because you are a great and faithful God. So Lord, remind us of that tonight. Lord, we love you so much for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's, it's hard to be at the end of a, you know, a, a chunk of the Bible that literally we started way back on December the 1st. We, we started this section uh, seven months ago. And now we're coming to the end of this amazing uh, two books written by Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, the one that's lamenting over what is happening amongst the people of Israel in the worst time in the history of, nation, of the nations living here on this earth, where literally the temple has been destroyed the walls have been torn down. Babylon has come in and destroyed what was once that light on a hill. And now it has been demolished. And we come to realize as we've been, you know, walking through. And if, if you've been here maybe even just one week or, or two weeks or, or a couple of weeks, whatever it is, how long you've been here uh, as we've been walking through, you understand the depths of the sorrow of Jeremiah, because he's feeling what the people are feeling, even though he himself, as the prophet of God, doesn't deserve the punishment that God has brought upon Jerusalem, he's still going through it. He's in that pit. He, he, he was mocked by the people. He, he was tortured by the people uh, that he was called to bring hope to. And now we find out at the end of Lamentations, we see the luster has gone away. And, and just like Kat was sharing with us that, that picture of gold or something that's valuable. We saw that when we uh, ended last week there in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, how the gold has become dim, how changed the fine gold. The stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. Do you understand what that is saying? That, that the once beautiful temple that was built by King Solomon himself has been scattered throughout the city of Jerusalem. As the Babylonians came in and, and looted the city. But not only does it represent the temple, but it represents the people as well. Because they too were supposed to be refined, valuable, something that had been changed from something that was full of dross or impurities and that has now been made into something that is valuable. They've lost their value. 
Well, look at the way Lamentations describes it through the pen of Jeremiah. The precious sons of Zion, valuable as fine gold, how they are regarded as clay pots, the work of the hands of the potter. They were once valued as gold, and now what has become of them? Something that you would toss out and shatter. Something that's no longer of any worth. Even the jackals present their breasts to nurse their young, but the daughter of my people is cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Just as we learned earlier in the book of Jeremiah, this siege that has taken place not only has caused famine, it's caused drought, it's caused disease. So much so that it has hurt to the least of the people, the babies. Those that are supposed to be cared for by their mothers are having to make choices in their lives where they have to actually neglect their children. And as we find out even later in a most horrific way, what is going to happen to the babies? But the comparison here is to a jackal. Right? Some wild beast out in the field or, or some wild beast that we wouldn't think of as, you know, being nice to its own kids. But at least the jackal offers its breast to its babies. What has happened to the women? What has happened to the mothers? What has happened to the families? There's nothing left to offer. This is the downfall of Jerusalem at its worst place in history. It continues on there, verse 5, chapter 4. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those who were brought up in scarlet embrace ash heaps. The punishment of iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment with no help or no hand to help her. Again, the downfall of Israel. And you remember when we first started the book of Lamentations, we see that there's 22 verses in chapter 1, 22 verses in chapter 2, uh, 22 verses in chapter 4, 22 verses in chapter 5, and then 66 there in the middle chapter of chapter 3. This is a uh, mnemonic device. It's a, a memory aid in such a way that every single verse is a sequential letter of the Hebrew alphabet. All 22 consonants in sequential order of each and every single one of these chapters. Uh, meant to bring to mind what it is like to be brought down in such a way where even though as Jeremiah is composing uh, this amazing poetry in the pit... Then when he comes out, having to somehow write this down, the record of the fall of Jerusalem in its starkest details. It gets worse, by the way. Verse 7, her Nazarites were brighter than snow and whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies, like sapphire in their appearance. And now... Their appearance is blacker than soot. They go unrecognized in the streets. Their skin clings to their bones. It has become as dry as wood. What is the cause of sin? And why is this happening to the chosen people of God? You guys know who the Nazarites were, right? We, we talked about this last week. These were the people that had made a vow to God. Not, not to shave their head, not to eat anything from the vine. Couldn't eat grapes, raisins, uh, wine, anything like that. And, and sometimes it was for a period of time. Sometimes for a month or a year or, or a certain number of years. Sometimes it was a lifetime. But, but it's always a, a choice on the person's part in order to worship the Lord as set apart to God. And now what has come to these religious people? What has come about of them? 
the, these people that were supposed to be uh, the epitome of what it was like to follow after God have now become walking skeletons covered in soot. Can you imagine that? This is the downfall of Jerusalem because of their sin. Verse 9, those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. For these pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. It's hard to read the next verse, you know that. Verse 10, the hands of the compassionate woman have cooked their own children. They become food for them, the destruction of the daughter of my people. And the answer is, the question is, the answer is, at the same exact time, why is God doing this? Why would God allow this to happen to his people? Why would this come about to the people that were supposed to be the apple of God's eye? The place where God dwelt literally here on this earth in the temple. Why would this happen to a people uh, that were supposed to be set apart as a blessing to the entire world? Where is God? Where is God? The answer to the first part is because of their sin. This is why judgment has come and it's been a warning to the people for thousands of years. If you don't return to me, this is what will happen. If you continue to look like the Sodom and Gomorrah or the, all the ites in the land, this is what will happen. And over the, literally the centuries, God had relented over and over and over again. During the time of Hezekiah and Uzziah and all these ayahs, God had relented over and over and saved his people multiple times. But now as Zedekiah, the last king of Jerusalem here, has been taken away, his eyes plucked from his head right after he sees his two sons killed before them. Because of sin. The answer to the second one, we already, we already read. Where is God? Where is God? In the same place he's always been. On the throne. You know, if you haven't been here before, you, you maybe think, well, that, that's kind of harsh. That, that's kind of, you know, standoffish. Hands off, if you will. Why doesn't God somehow leave his throne and come and rescue his people like he's supposed to do? We find out the answer in the very next verse here in verse 11. The Lord has fulfilled his fury. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion and it has devoured its foundations. Who was the one that brought to destruction on Jerusalem? The Lord did. Where is this God of mercy? Where, where is the, the God that we read about in chapter 3? The one who's supposed to bring hope every single day that that sun rises. I remember, I recall to my mind, this gives me hope. His mercies are new every single day. His loving kindnesses never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. By the way, that's right in the middle of the saddest book in the entire Bible. Where is God? He's still on the throne. Now this is the amazing part here. Do I know always where to go? The, per the perfect illustration is, you know, one of the parables that Jesus told. We, we, we commonly call it the prodigal son, right? What did the son do? 
He asks for his inheritance, and a little bit later, he decides, I'm going to leave. He spends it all, he squanders it all on everything that he could ever want, all the temptations of the world, and where does he find himself? Where does he find himself? You know the answer. In a pigsty, right? Wanting to eat the corn husks, right? Or, or the corn, whatever the middle part of the corn is, not you know, cobs, thank you. Not the husk, the cobs, yeah. That's what he was longing to eat with these unclean animals, these pigs. Now the interesting thing is, where was the father the whole time? Where was the father the whole time? At the gate. Waiting for his son to come back. At the entrance to the family's estate. Did the son always know where the father was? We find that out in the pigsty, by the way, right? He remembers what it was like back at his father's house, right? And where does the son go? Back to the father's house. And who's there wanting and looking for him the whole time? Waiting for him to come down that road. And then runs to meet him. It's the father. It's the same thing with us and God. Where's God always? He's on the throne. He will always be there. And do we have access to the very throne room of God? Yes, we do. As the book of Hebrews tells us. We can come boldly. Before the throne room of God. And even in the privilege that anyone that knows Jesus Christ, their Lord and their Savior, can come to the throne room of God and talk to God himself. No matter where we're at in the world, by the way. God will always be there. At the throne. Continues on there. Verses 12 and 13 kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This is an understatement, by the way. This has been tried many times, not only by the Assyrians, but the Babylonians and multiple cultures. They, they had tried to breach the gates of Jerusalem, but of course, many times they had failed. And now for the first time in the history of Jerusalem, ever since the time when King David built those walls and King Solomon built that temple, have an enemy been able to breach the walls? This flabbergasted the nations, but why is that? It says it in verse 13 there, because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. Who shed in her midst the blood of the just. What is the reason for the punishment? What is the reason for the punishment? The sin of the leadership of Israel. Not, not just the common people. Not just the everyday people. But the ones that were supposed to look like God to the people. The, the, the religious leaders. The priests and the prophets. The ones that were supposed to represent the people before God and bring truth to the people have been extorting the people and fleecing the flock. The ones that were supposed to be the shepherds to Israel are now the ones that are slaughtering the lambs. And of course, you know, they're not to blame as, or not only to be blamed as well. The people have followed in their footsteps too. So much so as we saw earlier that their sins surpassed the sins of even Sodom and Gomorrah itself. And so God has brought judgment. Now we know how long this is going to last. And if, if you remember the previous lessons from the book of Jeremiah. This is only going to last for 70 years. Uh, but for 70 years there's going to be no temple. For 70 years, there's going to be no place for the people of Israel to worship God here on this earth. 
There's going to be no place for the people to come to and have their feasts and their celebrations, uh, their fall feasts and their, their, you know, their Passover and all the things that they did to worship God that they had forgotten about. For 70 years, they're not going to be able to do it. And so when they come back, they're going to be longing for it. They're going to be desiring it. They're going to be desiring to worship God. Verse 14, they wander blind in the streets. They have defiled themselves with blood so that no one would touch their garments. They cry out to them, go away, unclean, go away, go away. Do not touch us. When they fled and wandered, those among the nations said, they shall no longer dwell here. These priests, these prophets who were supposed to be holy, now how are they being treated? This is the common cry of someone that would be leprous. Unclean, unclean, they were supposed to cry out in warning to those that might come near them. What are the prophets and the priests having to do as well? No one will even regard them, touch them, come near them. Verse 16, the face of the Lord scattered them. He no longer regards them. The people do not respect the priests nor show favor to the elders. Still our eyes failed us watching vainly for our help. In our watching we watched for a nation that could not save us. They tracked our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near. Our days were over for our end had come. By the way, who's writing this? Who's composing this? This is Jeremiah. Who is he lamenting for? Who is he weeping for? The people. He could have easily filled this book with his woes. With his problems. Just like many of us do. We, we fill our you know, journals our, our thoughts with, oh, woe is me. Look at how bad I have it. And we laugh now, but in reality, you know, step outside this door tomorrow or even tonight. What do we think about? The weight of the world. All the problems that we have, right? It's always about us. Me, even. The person up here. Trust me. But, but who is Jeremiah lamenting for, by the way? He's lamenting for the people. And he's in a worse place than the people too, by the way. He, he's going to be an outcast. He, he's going to have to go to Egypt in a foreign country, uh, dragged there by people that have forced him to go with them. And he's still lamenting for those that are in the destruction of Jerusalem, those that have been taken away to Babylon. Verse 19, hopefully you see the pictures here as we, we go through. And it's meant to be something that you see in your mind's eye. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles of the heavens. They pursued us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, was caught in their pits. Of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. God, where is your hand of protection over us, Lord? We're supposed to be like your, your chicks that you gather. Where is God? Where is God? Where is God? Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. The cup shall also pass over to you. You shall become drunk and make yourself naked. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no longer send you into captivity. He will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will uncover your sins. Is this a typo that God is calling the people of Israel Edomites? You remember who the father of the nation of Edom was, right? Esau, right? The, the twin brother of Jacob who was later renamed Israel. 
What, what, what is God calling the Israelites? You're acting like your twin brother Esau. You're acting like those that have been chosen not only to reject, but also have acted like the world. The twin brother of Israel, the one that was selfish, the one that had rejected God, the ones that had lived in the you know, land as nomads, lived amongst the rocks, lived in the caves. It's interesting how it describes it there at the end of verse 21. You shall become drunk and make yourself naked. They're so inebriated that they don't care what anyone thinks. They're, they're so drunk that they don't care what happens to them. They've been blitzed out of their mind. And so we come to the last chapter of Lamentations. Chapter 5, verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our houses to foreigners. We've become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. Can you imagine that, by the way? Now, this isn't the Babylonians that have taken over the dwellings that are left in Jerusalem. Uh, this is the people that uh, wanted the land of Jerusalem. These were the Ites. These were the Ammonites and the Amorites. The, these were the ones that had dwelt in the land previously that the people of Israel were supposed to chase out that are now creeping back into the land. These are the ones that have overtaken all the leftovers, if you will, in Jerusalem. That have converted the Jerusalem dwellings into ite dwellings. That have come in and, and taken over the dwelling places of the once mighty nation of Israel. And are now inhabiting the land. And you remember when we first started uh, the book of, of Jeremiah. We had learned that there was three different exiles. Uh, the, these were the, the stages in which Babylon had, had come and, and taken away people from uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, Judah or Jerusalem. They'd come in stages. First they come, they said, we're going to attack you if you don't pay us off. And so they, they literally stripped the gold from the outside of the temple, the doors of the temple, the first time that Babylon had come. And then they took away the, the brightest and the smartest and the most handsome, the Bible says. These were the ones like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were the ones that were taken away to the upper echelon of Babylon society. And then the second time they came, they, they took away people like Ezekiel. Uh, the the blue-collar workers, the ones with skills and craftsmanship. And they took those away and they, they put them by the river Kibar. We're going to get to that next week when we get to the book of Ezekiel. And then the riffraff that are left have now all been, you know, either scattered, killed, starved. All the things that we see here, those that are with uh, Jeremiah. Uh, what has happened to the once great nation of Judah, Israel, Jerusalem? They've become a reproach, a laughing stock to all the nations. This once great empire led by David and Solomon that used to be at the height of the world that people would want to come and see are now being inhabited by the riffraff, the rejects, the ites. They've become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. We pay for the water we drink and our wood comes at a price. Wow. Wow. Sounds like today almost, right? 
But, but you know, these, these things are supposed to be free. That it, you just get for a little bit of work, you know, going to the well, going to the forest, getting the wood, getting the water. What are they now having to do for it? Everything comes at a price. They pursue at our heels. We labor and we have no rest. By the way, this was supposed to be one of the hallmarks of what it meant to be an Israelite. A day of rest. Because no other culture had that. No other culture had a, a day where, that was specifically set aside for rest every single week. It's a foreign concept to us, but it was treasured back then. And now what has happened to the once mighty people of Israel? They find no rest. By the way, they're supposed to be in a land of milk and honey, a place of rest. But instead, what has been taken away from them? Their rest. We've given our hand to the Egyptians and the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Servants rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. And the question I ask again is, where is God? Where is God? Do, do we ask that question ourselves many times? Do we, do we hear other people ask that question? Where is God? The answer is still the same, by the way. Just as it was in the book of Jeremiah, just as it is in the book of Lamentations. Where is God? He's still on the throne. Verse 10 there. By the way, I, I was thinking about this as I was studying, you know, and, and it's kind of this, you know, um, long-awaited conclusion, but yet at the same time, it's hard to let go. We've been in this section for a long time. We've been with Jeremiah walking with him for a long time. As we, we come to the very end of, of Lamentations, I, I really want you to, you know, savor what it is like, you know, and, and every single author in the Bible is unique. God, God, every single word is God breathed, but God uses the author. God uses the person in, in his unique, you know, abilities and talents and personality. And Jeremiah, you know, as we've been walking through, has this flavor of being able to help us to see, picture what it is like in the hardest of times to really put ourselves in the moment of the downfall of Jerusalem. And so as we read this, this next section, please, you know, I mean, it's hard, but, but please picture this. Do you feel it? Our skin is hot as an oven because of the fever of famine. They ravished the women in Zion, the maidens in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung by their hands and elders were not respected. Young men ground at the millstones. Boys staggered under loads of wood. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate and the young men from their music. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into morning. Wow. What does sin do? It robs you of your joy and it destroys you. The younger you learn that, the better, by the way. Because the older you are, you understand the toil of sin, the weight of sin, the consequences of sin. What it is like to make choices in our youth that cause long-lasting consequences. And that can rob you of your joy. 
Verse 15, the joy of our heart has ceased, our dance has turned into mourning, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have, and there it is, sin. It's consequences of sin. Where's the mercies of God? Where's his loving kindnesses? Why doesn't God come and rescue us every single time we sin? Now, we, we understand that, you know, thank God for, you know, Jesus Christ dying on the cross. We don't have to suffer the, the eternal consequences of our sins. Thank God for that, okay? We, we all understand that. We all know that. But does God allow the consequences of our temporal sins here on this world for a purpose? Yes. Hopefully so that we won't make them again but also to refine us and discipline us as well. To make us, as we saw earlier, into valuable objects. To remove the dross from our lives. Verse 17 and 18, because this, is our, this our heart is faint, because of these things our eyes grow dim, because of the Mount, of Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. The, the Temple Mount that was supposed to be the jewel of Jerusalem, the one that all the people of Israel were supposed to come to and worship God, what is now, what does it look like? It's barren. Wild animals are just wandering around on it. It's been demolished and destroyed. The bragging point of King Solomon, look at this amazing, beautiful temple where even the Queen Sheba would come up and visit it because it was so amazing. And when she got there, was even more amazed and said, you know, I, I heard this great thing about the temple, about your, you know, your city, and, and it's even surpassed anything that people have described to me. The once wonder of the world is now destroyed. But then we have these last three verses. And it really puts everything in perspective because we understand this, that God doesn't dwell in a church or a building or a place, right? We understand that, you know, and, and thank God, you know, but... But for a certain period of time, God was here on earth physically in the temple. God was here in spirit physically here on the earth. Where the Shekinah glory literally came down to the earth in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Guess what? When we get to the book of Ezekiel... We're going to see it leave. We're going to see him leave. We're going to watch the glory of God leave the temple. From the perspective, from the vision of Ezekiel. This flabbergasts us. Because we know where God dwells, right? He dwells in heaven on the throne. But he also dwells where else? In our heart. Thank God for that. Because we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us as temples too. And do you treasure that? Do you value that? Do, do you understand how special you are to God? With that visual in mind, look what it says in the last three verses there. You, O Lord, remain forever. Your throne from generation to generation. Even though the temple's been destroyed, is God still on the throne? Yes, he is. For how long is God on the throne? Now, now the, the description here is generation to generation, but it literally means forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Not only in the future, but also in the past as well. Eternal past and eternal future, God always is on the throne. 
Now, the privilege of understanding that is, can I go to God on the throne? If God is on the throne, is he omniscient? Is God, if God is on the throne, is he omnipotent? Is, if God is on the throne, is he in charge? If God is on the throne, is everything perfectly in place in the will of God? Does anything confuse God? No. Does he know that everything is happening? In this world. Yes he does. It says there in verse 20 and 21. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for oh so long a time. Turn us back to you O Lord and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old. Jeremiah understood this. In fact this is the most repeated uh, word in the book of Jeremiah Lamentations total of any other phrase like this in the whole Bible. Return to me, backslidden people. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 7, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 12, Jeremiah 3, chapter 14, or verse 14, Jeremiah 3, 22, seven times in this section here. Just in these two uh, beginning verses, I want to read to you Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 1. If you return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. If you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. What is God saying reaching out to the people of Israel? Return to me. He doesn't say it just once. He doesn't say it just twice. He says it multiple times. And then at the end, the very end of the writings of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, he says it again, return to the Lord. Learn your lesson. Return to God because he's still on the throne. He's still there. You can still cry out to him. Thank God for that, by the way. Last verse, verse 22. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. You understand why it ends with this verse? And, and by the way, it, I mean, it stops right there. Just stops. This question or this statement that ends in an exclamation point the very end of lamentations do you, do you guys know what the next book is after lamentation i mean you, all you have to do is you've been waiting you've been counting the days finally we get to ezekiel another book no but do you know why that ends like this because this, is the, this, this judgment of God has now been poured out on the people of Jerusalem. They've been taken away into bondage in a foreign country some a thousand miles away. And the next prophet to come on the scene, Ezekiel, in chapter 1, by the way, the most apocalyptic of all the Old Testament prophets that when you read the book this week, hopefully, and as you read chapter 1, you're going to be floored. But where does he see God? Where does Ezekiel see God? In the very next chapter, in the very next book in the Bible, where does he see God? Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, tells us right there. Where is God? In the very first chapter of Ezekiel, where is God? As, as Ezekiel is seeing this vision on the river Kibar there in Babylon, some 900, 1,000 miles away from Jerusalem, the temple's been destroyed. Where does Ezekiel see God? It gives me goosebumps. 
And above the firmament over their heads was the likeness of a... There it is. A throne. An appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was the likeness of the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist and above... I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around. Like the appearance of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Wow. Where is God? On the throne. And now Ezekiel gets to describe him in all of his splendor, by the way. The same splendor he had in Jeremiah. The same splendor he had in Isaiah. The same splendor he has today. It's just, unfortunately, what we look at. We look at our dirty walls. We look at our sin. We look at our problems. We look at our, the things that are happening in this, this world. We look at, you know, all the things that are happening to us. God's still on the throne, and God is still just as glorious as he was since eternity past. God's always been glorious. It's our sin that gets in the way. We don't look at God. And hopefully when we get to the book of Ezekiel, we actually get to see the glory of God unmarred. But this is the most amazing thing. And, and, and you know, it's the end of verse 28 there in chapter 1. This is Ezekiel, by the way. And this should be our response too. So when I saw, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one speaking. What do we get to hear at the throne of God? What do we get to hear at the throne of God? His voice. His voice. This is why I'm, I'm so grateful for Kat and Rebecca leading us in silence. Because we are so quick to talk to God, but so slow to listen to Him. And sometimes it takes devastating things in our lives for us to finally realize that I need to start listening to God. Because He has a lot more important things to say than I do. We'll see this when we get to the book of Ezekiel. So, Father, tonight as we, we end this amazing section of your word, the book of Jeremiah, the one who lamented for the people, and, and to realize that you're still on the throne. We, we know that, we, we, whether it's even just logically. But help us to grasp it spiritually, personally in our own lives. That when, when the, our, we are inundated with so many things that vie for our attention in this world. All, all the, the things that want us to draw us away from you. Lord, Lord, help us to realize that we can come before you at any time. You are high and lifted up. You are more glorious than anything that we can ever experience here in this world. You're still on the throne. You still have the perfect way for us. That you have so much greater wisdom than all of the things that we or other people could say. That we can just bask in your glory and know and listen to you. So Lord, tonight as we get a glimpse into what this next chapter is, help us to not forget what we've learned in the previous books. That the sin that has brought down the downfall of Jerusalem can so easily creep into our own lives as well. 
the, the lives of us here. So Lord, help us to truly examine our lives. Help us to weed out all those things that, that distract us from who you are. Lord, I, I thank you so much for these that are here tonight, those that are online, those that may watch in the future. Lord, I ask that you would help us to realize that you're still on the throne, that you're still in charge, that you're still supreme, that you're still high and lifted up, and that we can come before you at any time boldly and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are there for us. And that we can listen to the wisdom, omniscience of a holy and righteous God who loves us, who desires to be with us. So Lord, help us to realize that tonight. Lord, I thank you for these here, that you would just bless them, Lord. You would give them that, whether that's a special blessing that maybe it's to remind them or, or to give them that peace or to, to you know bring about some sort of joy in their lives or, or to help them to see that you're there with them, that you, you help them to see a, a, maybe a, a, a miracle that happens in their life that, that just has your touch written all over it. You would bless these here, those that are watching, that they didn't come for a blessing, but there's a blessing offered here tonight. And it comes from you. Something that's more valuable than anything the world could ever offer us. And so Lord, I ask that you would help us tonight to see you. What you have to offer us is more valuable than the world. Um, tries to display on all the billboards or all the apps or all, all the ads. Help us to have our eyes open to you, Lord. Lord, I thank you so much for your presence here tonight. Thank you so much for who you are. And we ask that you help us to look and look more like you daily. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless.